All right, Christopher, I know we only have about 15 minutes, unfortunately, <coughs> but I just wanted to, hopefully we'll follow up with a longer one. Um, and I'll wait a few minutes for you to go into your total spiel. Um, uh, so I'm in Dubai airport. I know you will, and where are you right now? I'm, I'm at my home office in, in Montana. Okay. And uh, we met in Marrakesh recently and uh, uh, sort of, what was it? I would call it the COP22 unconference. And uh, yeah. it, was, uh, it, was, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Um, and uh, so now we've got like 25 people. So, so tell me a little bit what, of what you do. And I apologize for the crappy uh, video and audio because we're literally using lounge Wi-Fi. But um, tell, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? So really what I do evolved out of an initial realization that growing up in New York City, I, I, I felt this sort of deep desire to, to understand what people meant when they said the word wilderness. And I initially went up to Alaska to find wilderness. And I got up there and, and you know, and I was a kid from the Bronx and I got up to Alaska and it blew me away. Um, the fact that there were giant animals, grizzly bears, there were, there were moose, there were salmon just pulsing up these rivers, all this stuff happening. And I, I sort of had the same feeling I have in New York City. When I was growing up there, I just felt like, how can everything work, right? How can people kind of keep the whole thing from not just just falling apart and entropy not just completely exploding the place? I sort of felt the same thing. How could the world support this incredible set of animals that are just sort of for hundreds, thousands of years just roaming around those places? And as I walked through there, it was this realization that the world functions, right? The world can function. This rich, thriving life can function all on its own. And at the same time, I felt this really deep melancholy. Or so I don't know whether I'd call it loneliness. There was something really hollow. And I'll never forget coming around a corner on this one little creek and sort of picking my head up. I was sort of looking at my feet. I was 16 years old and picked my head up. And before I could even think, there was a grizzly bear charging directly at me kicking its feet, gravel spraying everywhere. And then I had no idea. You know, now I, I would know right away this was a complete bluff. But I had no idea, no idea what to do. I can't believe I just didn't just run away. I didn't. I stood there stunned. And the animal stopped maybe eight or nine feet from me. And as it stopped, this big waft of like 12 golden, wet golden retrievers on an August afternoon in your basement smell came across me. And the bear made this big huff that hit me in the chest, walked away. And not knowing what to do, I just kept walking up the creek. And not long after seeing that bear, I came upon a big rock that had pictographs on it. And it had some weird, blurry images, and one of them looked like a bear. And these were probably thousands of years old. And I realized that that melancholy, that wilderness had people in it. And the places that I thought of as completely untrammeled and devoid of people actually had this deeper history with human beings inside of them and some of the wildest places on the planet 
had this rich human history inside of them. And so what do I, what I do now is the legacy of that moment where I realized that this idea of nature over here and humans here, the fact that wilderness can exist and we go and come from it was just a fiction, not an unuseful fiction, but it was a fiction. So what I do now is seek places where human beings are deeply enmeshed within and embody what we might call wild or, or what we might call a thriving ecological system that is not there in spite of humans, but is there because of them. Because it is in those places, I think, are these wellsprings that right now, right, as we're sort of untethered, you and I both, look where we're sitting, talking through these machines, we're untethered from the, the kind of the way that the natural world is us. Those places where people are deeply enmeshed in what we might call wild are wellsprings that we can return to to kind of not recover, but almost reinvigorate those parts of ourselves that I think are dead center at the heart of what we need in Marrakesh, what we need in Paris with these climate talks, but what we need in our urban centers, what we need in our relationships in terms of understanding that we are not protecting nature. We are not, you know, conservation isn't about anything more than, than, than mystery, wonder, and literally maintaining the very best dimensions of who we are. So what I do is seek those places, listen, and try to recognize and support communities of people who are um, perpetuating those kinds of feedbacks and relationships where human beings in place are just deeply entangled. I mean, that's amazing. And it ties into this one fact that you tell me if I get the numbers wrong, but that I heard in Marrakesh that 25% of the world's land is sort of managed by indigenous people. And that 80%, I think, of the carbon sink and the biodiversity is in that 25%. And somehow they're able to flourish and still be, uh, like you said, completely integrated into nature rather than sort of living despite nature or living by managing nature is, is that and, and that the idea is how can we both learn from them and protect that um is, is that is that sort of a high level description of what you're trying to do yeah well, well, i mean definitely and, and i want to be careful not to so definitely between 20 and 25 percent of the land area on earth is is being stewarded by is under the control of indigenous people and local communities and you know, it's no accident that within that, that, you know, one over one fifth of the habitable planet and then vast ocean areas, too, are some of the richest, most thriving ecological systems that remain on Earth. Eighty percent of biological diversity is held, overlaps with those that that one fifth of the planet, the terrestrial you know, land, land, land area. But I want to be careful in that, you know, we're all indigenous to the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And there's no magic in terms of, you know, indigenous communities. What they do have is a deep continuity and a confluence of spirituality, of sort of history with geography, and common lineage or genealogy. Those things coming together are, are really what hold great hope for all of us and are part of why many of the areas controlled by indigenous people are doing better, right, mm -hmm. than areas that are under the control of geopolitical entities that are subject to electoral cycles and planning on two to four year schemes as opposed to 200 to 400 generational schemes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But 
in many cases, that these indigenous places that are still thriving are are that way almost due to benign neglect. Many of them are very inaccessible. They haven't been recognized as um, entities worthy of, of, of getting the support in terms of infrastructure and development. Mm-hmm. So some of it is actually the result of a lack of recognition, right? And, and so, but be that as it may, what we have is an opportunity to recognize, support, learn from, and, and kind of help partner envisioning how we as a species are going to steward that one-fifth of the planet, especially given that those folks who are, who are kind of controlling those places now um, are holding right, the, the fate of all of our futures in mm-hmm. that, whether it's climate or biodiversity, if those places go the way of, you know, the New York cities of the world where I'm from, we're all in big trouble. And, and it seems like, you know, there's this sort of protecting indigenous people for, um, for uh, what would, like justice, social justice, and then there's learning from them and uh, uh, learning how, how, what they do and how they do it. And you know, the, they seem related, but they're different, right? And I think that it, it seems also if we're going to learn from indigenous people, and a lot of what we do at the Media Lab is try to understand the language of nature. But one of the things that I realized was that they're the, the, especially since talking to a lot of indigenous people, it's, it's not intuitive because their fundamental paradigms are so different from us. And so I mean, what do you think the right method is for what you, you said, learn from them? I mean, are these anthropologists? Are they scientists? What's what does the discipline look like um, in in which we can learn from um, these people and convert it into science? You know, I think the biggest the the, the the two words. Well, really, there's one primary word, and that is humility. Mm-hmm. And having us, I mean, you and I are both scientists by training, and having the humility to understand that science science is an incredibly is one incredibly powerful way to describe how the world is it doesn't tell us how the world ought to be and what we can if we have the humility to understand that our science needs to be led by and needs to follow the wisdom that is held in human beings and mm-hmm. sets of human relationships that's when we, I think, can can understand how to listen, have the humility to listen, and and really transform the incredible sort of um, possibility that's held in all these other communities that kind of haven't been homogenized into our way of knowing or our ways of knowing. And and there's deep overlap. It's not like indigenous people are there and we're here. It's, it's that many indigenous communities, many indigenous peoples have held on to epistemologies as kind of a wonky word, but perspectives that really have evaporated for all of us as we've struggled with um, different forms of, you know, good hearted, but sometimes oppressive religion, uh, different forms of governance that have tried to take over very large areas and impress people who are connected to those places originally. So we've sort of erased a lot of that not just within our society, but within ourselves. So one of the keys is as, as, a, as a scientist, having the humility to really listen and to have the courage to not think that we have to pose the questions, to be able to listen and hear questions that are coming out of communities of individuals, whether indigenous or not, 
that have maybe have novel questions that we haven't even thought to ask that our disciplines, our science can then come to bear in terms of helping to approach an answer to those kinds of mm -hmm. questions. That's where one of the, some of the most successful relationships that I've had is when I've kind of, when people have been patient enough with me mm -hmm. to teach me how to have the humility to listen to the kinds of questions they're asking and then apply science and partnership and collaboration to those questions. And, and I know you need to go pick up your kids soon, so let me know when you need to run, because um, we can always do this again. Uh, I, I would love to, Joey, just because I feel like we're just, we're just starting yep. here, and I, I, I have to say I love the idea of just capturing conversations. Mm -hmm. Whoever's watching, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago, Joey just said, hey, can you get on a call? And, uh, and here we are, and the fact that it's being captured, I think, is, really, is magic. Um, I mean, it's being so captured I, in I, stream, love, I have so. about two minutes. Okay. So. Well, I think, I think let's promise to connect again, um, but maybe you can um, sort of finish by just saying kind of what, what's your current mission that you're working on with Project? So I, I have a variety of projects that I've worked on for the last five to 25 years, and, 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 and the one thing I've learned is that as you build those relationships, it's, it, 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 you know, they don't go away and you need to think, you need to be very thoughtful about when you choose to commit in these kinds of spaces. I think it's like friendships. I mean, we can't be friends with everybody. We don't have enough space in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I have a set of ongoing projects that have, I think, keep me rooted in the realities and the incredibly humbling challenges of, of understanding how to work in, in contexts where people are trying to hang on to histories that are not part of the kind of geopolitical, you know, nation state world. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got a series of projects in British Columbia, in the, in the Southwest Pacific, in the Solomon Islands, New Guinea, um, uh, some work here in, in, in the United States. Um, but really the most exciting thing that I'm starting to work on with a number of people, and I hope including yourself, Joey, is the idea of on a global scale, beginning to recognize the, the, the importance, not just to climate, not just to biodiversity conservation, not just because it's one fifth of the earth and 80% of the biodiversity, 30% of the climate solution, but recognizing indigenous peoples and local communities on a, on a level that is on par with nation states. Because in many cases, indigenous peoples represent nations with a completely different epistemology, different governance systems that I think if we lose those, right, if we don't recognize and, 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 and kind of support their presence on the earth, some of the some really critical dimensions of who we all are as a, as a, as a species are going to evaporate and disappear. Mm -hmm. It's like when languages go away. Everyone's talked about there are projects that are, that are looking at the disappearance of languages and how, how dangerous that is for how we collectively think about the world and expand that out to communities of people that are deeply entangled in these places. As those go away, right, our reach as a species, our, mm -hmm. our, our the depth, the richness, the the, the nimbleness and, mm -hmm. the, and the kind of um, the, what we can draw upon to, to, to face an increasingly uncertain future, all of that is diminished. So mm -hmm. the primary thing I'm working on is how do we create new global platforms 
to recognize, support, and listen to mm-hmm. what indigenous peoples and local communities are doing around the world to maintain their own livelihoods and, and futures, but really kind of doing the hard work for all of us mm-hmm. because the systems that are under their control are critical for our future. And, and from a systems dynamics perspective, it's that is that cultural diversity is going to be what allows us to pivot our culture. It's kind of like biodiversity, right? And and obviously yeah. we need we need to change our culture to change our to fix the system. And I think that they hold uh, a lot of that uh, sort of if just to use an evolutionary dynamics you know metaphor, they hold the DNA that we're going to need in order to repair our system. And so I think that 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 you know it's 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 weirdly. Um, similar across scales, and uh, I'd love I'd love to talk about this from your evolutionary, uh, 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 you know, dynamics perspective next time too. So I'm going to let you go get yeah. your kids. I'm going to go catch my flight, but uh, let's continue this again, uh, maybe even uh, in the next couple of days. Yeah, it, it would be a delight, Joey. I I, I I really enjoyed stumbling into you in Marrakesh, and um, yeah, I hope this conversation is the beginning of of, of many more. Take care. Thanks, man. Have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, and say hi to the moose. Yeah. Yeah. Take care, man.